Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. The Taoiseach has said that an investigation is underway to find those behind violence targeting homeless asylum seekers in Dublin at the weekend so that they may be brought to justice. Ireland is a country like any other country. There is always going to be an element of people who have uh, far-right views or racist views and an element of people who will turn to violence. But I think we as a society have to reject that unequivocally. The Irish Times apologises for a hoax AI article which was published on its website with the editor of the newspaper describing it as a breach of trust between the newspaper and its readers. Tonight we look at what are the signs that were missed that allowed this article to go online. And later, inside the hospice, we look at the new Virgin Media documentary exploring end-of-life care. It's very entertaining planning your... I shouldn't be saying that, really. But it's very entertaining planning your, your funeral because you think of all the things that you want and all the things that you hope. You can join our conversation online with your comments and your questions on the hashtag TonightVMTV. reminder about our nightly live interactive poll which allows you to have your say and tonight we're asking have you used artificial intelligence tools yet we will be talking more about that in the next part of the program you can vote online on virginmediatelevision.ie forward slash vote or you can follow the qr code on the screen and we will bring you those poll results later on in the program now, the Taoiseach has said that an investigation is underway to find those behind the violence targeting homeless asylum seekers in Dublin at the weekend so that they may be brought to justice. Leo Radker said he was shocked and horrified by the destruction in recent days of a, of a camp uh, in Dublin city centre. Well, for more on this, Sinn Féin TD Louise O'Reilly and Minister of State at the Department of Transport, Jack Chambers, are here with me in studio. You're both very welcome along to the programme tonight. And um, we heard from the Taoiseach today, shocked and horrified was what he had to say um, about the attack on the migrant camp in Sandwich Street in Dublin. Is this an adequate response from the Taoiseach, do you think, uh, Louise, when people are seeking shelter in very vulnerable places and then they come under attack and have their makeshift homes, which is essentially what they are. They have them burnt out. Well, I suppose we need to look at why people were sleeping in tents in the middle of Dublin city centre. It's because they have come here seeking protection. They have some come here to seek asylum and uh, the government have let them down. Let's be honest, they have nowhere to, uh, for them to go. They were forced to sleep outdoors. Uh, we now, uh, we, we will see, uh, and we've all seen the pictures of tents burnt out. I mean, that, that was where these people were living. That was their that was their home. Um, 
I think it's good to hear from Antishak that, uh, you know, that these people are going to be pursued. But I think we also need to look at the reasons why they were outside on the streets, you know, and look around that area. I know that constituency very well. I know our rep there, Chris Andrews, uh, has been very heavily engaged with the local community. And I know also that uh, there are sites like the Bagot Street Hospital, like Jury's Hotel, that lie empty while people are sleeping uh, on the streets. So there's like nearly 500 people who have come to this state to seek asylum, who have come seeking shelter, to come to seek some peace and some safety. And they're now sleeping out on the streets. So there has been a failure of government policy. I think that has found these people onto the streets. I think it's important now that the people who burnt mm -hmm. down their homes, uh, the people who were guilty of that intimidation and abuse that they are, of course, brought to justice. Okay. But I think we need to look also at the reasons why people were sleeping out on the streets in Dublin City in the middle of 2023. And that is a failure of government. You look around that constituency, there are places that could be repurposed and repurposed quickly. I don't know why that hasn't been done and I haven't heard an adequate explanation from government yet. Um, a failure of government, uh, Jack Chambers, um, it might be horrifying, but is it really uh, shocking? Isn't this a bit of a cliche? It's not the first instance we've had of, of, of arson and um, attacks on, on migrants insofar as um, there was a, a fire at a Kildare facility that was planned to be used um, to house Ukrainians. We've had other arson attacks, a suspected arson attack in another part of Dublin city centre where it was falsely said that um, refugees or asylum seekers may be housed. So is this altogether shocking um, that protests have come to this, have come to this violent end in the case of what we saw in Sandwich Street? Well, look, the, the violence was really deeply disturbing um, and it represented real, real sinister intimidation of vulnerable people and I think it was correct that the Taoiseach uh, condemned it as he did. I think everyone is condemning it and it's absolutely appalling and unacceptable behaviour for everyone for everyone involved. The, the broader response from government, if you take it at the beginning of 2022, um, we had 8,500 people um, in, in accommodation who sought international national protection. We're now accommodating over 84,000 people. And when you look at the, the level of response from our public services, from our agencies, from the department involved, there's been an enormous response to provide safety, shelter and accommodation. Yes, yes there, are, there, there have been difficulties in recent days when it's come to, and in the last number of weeks, when it's come to uh, specific shortages of accommodation. Yeah, and we're, are we and, accommodating and the, all those people that you're saying? When you have people living in tents because they've nowhere else to go, homeless asylum seekers, is that not failing in our moral and legal duties? Well, is that accommodating people? We are well. If you think of the eighty-four thousand who have been accommodated, who are presently yeah. in accommodation, that shows the strength of the state's response. Okay. Yes, we have to do more, and the, the department are doing okay. everything there to procure additional accommodation. People, there are all those thousands of but it's people to, it's who are, just, are being it's, accommodated. It's important, but we're not. We're actually not talking about but, that. But, but I think we should talk about that because that. So provides, you want to talk about the good stuff? No, no. I think it's important to be balanced uh, in our perspective on this. You mm. can't dismiss the fact that the state has stood up, has provided a humanitarian response for many people who have fled very difficult situations in their home countries. And you can't dismiss the fact that 84,000 plus people have been accommodated. Yes, we have to do more uh, for those in a very difficult situation on our streets. Intense. And, and that's what's happening with the department at the moment. They're doing, making every effort to procure additional accommodation, to provide shelter and support for people who are in difficult situations tonight. And Minister O'Gorman stated that earlier today that there 
a couple of hundred beds uh, will become available during the week. Where and people... scrambled. All yeah, right. But, but, but that, we did but have that a case the, that, that we had the... 480 people on Friday without state-provided accommodation. Notwithstanding all the, the thousands of people you're talking about, there were 480 people who arrived in here and there was simply not a bed for them. No accommodation. There was no accommodation because of the. There is a, we're in a refugee crisis in Ireland and across Europe, and Ireland has taken a significant share of, of the overall uh, response when it comes per capita. And I think I think you cannot dismiss the overall response and the integrity of that from the Department of Children and everyone involved. Okay, so and, there, and, and, and every effort is being made. Yeah, okay, at Jack, government okay, you've made your, your point there. I just want to get Louise back in. Um, we okay, cannot so dismiss the overall response and, and nobody, the response of the government to a time. And the crisis. people who are working in uh, the, the Department of Integration are working really hard, and we know that, OK? But we do not have a refugee crisis, and I don't like, to be honest, I, I don't think it's fair to, to cite it as a refugee crisis. We have a homelessness crisis, and we have a housing mm -hmm. crisis, and that's because of government policy. There are over 3,000 people who are in direct provision at the moment who have been given leave to remain, who should be moving on to make available. I mean, that, that accommodation, by the way, Jesus, it leaves an awful lot to be desired, but it's better than a tent on the street. But they cannot move on because there is nowhere for them to go to. All of these people are caught up in a housing and okay. a homelessness crisis. The question that is, is the result of government the policy. The question is, what, what would Sinn Féin do now? What would you do about those 480 people without that state-provided accommodation? We've seen what's happened to people mm -hmm. who've been on the streets, who are living in tents, you know, seeking whatever shelter they can. Yeah. We've seen the threat that they've come under and what's happened, their makeshift homes. Yeah. And, and it was absolutely awful and it is condemned quite rightly right across the political divide. But as I said to you, those people are sleeping not five or ten minutes walk away from Jury's Hotel or from Bagot Street Hospital and nothing has been done to repurpose those buildings. That can and that should be done. If this is an emergency, it requires an emergency response. The housing crisis requires an emergency response and we don't don't see that coming from government. And the end result of that is 3,000 people in direct provision, 12,000 people who have leave to remain and can't go, 12,000 people in emergency accommodation and 480 and, and people forced to sleep on the streets who have come here to seek asylum. Louise, how many people down. may be housed in those two buildings that you're talking about? The jury, uh, the it depends on, it, yeah, it depends the, on the fit out, but you are talking about several hundred people being accommodated across both sites, up to, I think it's six or seven hundred would be possible, but it depends entirely on the on, on the fit out of it, how it's fitted out, how many people it can accommodate. But the problem is, it was it's now, what is it, eight months, Jackal, no, eight months, nine months since Roderick O'Gorman wrote yeah. to every single government department and asked yeah. them if they can come up with some solutions and some buildings. And I don't think that that's happening because if it's happening, we can't see the evidence of it. It's welcome that these people have, are going to be accommodated okay. in the coming days. But as you say yourself, they've been scrambling around trying to find something. This is not good. There is no plan. And it's just jumping and falling and stumbling from one crisis to another to another. Um, Jack, what, what Sinn Féin are saying, what others are saying is that... There, there doesn't seem to be a plan. If there is a plan there, then it's not very clear how all government departments are working together to provide accommodation to ensure that people are not out on the streets. Look, all options of accommodation are being explored by the Department of Integration. I know that for a fact. Six thousand. So those specific. Do you know 6, anything about those specific 6, ones? Just I, have, the, the... I haven't. I haven't like 
you, you can pick different examples. There's lots of buildings mm. that need to be repurposed. Well, some of them for accommodation. No, but Jack, these, are, them, these are issues that are like like Just picking two buildings isn't a solution for 84,000 people that have oh, arrived here. And is. again, uh, Sinn Féin have picked two buildings. That doesn't represent a solution to the overall problem. There, there, is a, there is a plan within the Department of Integration to look at repurposing buildings right, right across the state and work is ongoing. 6,000 new beds have been procured in, uh, since the start of 2023 mm. and there are, there are hundreds of beds coming on stream in the coming weeks. So the Department of Children and Integration has a pipeline of accommodation that's coming on stream. But obviously there's acute uh, dif difficulties at certain points and, and I, I regret that people are having to um, sleep in very difficult situations. And, and we're, 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 we're doing everything difficult to accommodation, sleeping in a tent. Sorry, Louise, can we be guaranteed when we're seeing this situation now and how it, it, it's played out with such a violent end and people essentially going from having tents to live in to, to nowhere to go. Um, can you guarantee that we will not see this situation uh, continue throughout the summer? Because we do have people consistently arriving here seeking shelter. And you're scrambling for a couple of hundred places now. Oh, there, What's there going are, to happen over the course of the summer? There, look, as again, I'm going to repeat the um, behaviour of some and their intimidation is absolutely shocking and uh, they need to be brought to account and, uh, and brought to justice for what mm -hmm. they did at the weekend, an absolute disgrace. Um, look, we're working uh, to procure all uh, accommodation op options and hundreds of additional uh, beds will come on stream. We haven't the scale of arrivals um, in the last couple of months than what we had last year where we had thousands of arriving. So the numbers have started to stabilise, albeit we still have numbers so that are arriving. So you're capable of managing it better. So, so we're, but yes, and, and but just say it's an unpredictable, we're in a very we're in a very um, unpredictable global picture with migration patterns that are constantly changing, with war, conflict, uh, and migration will continue to be a challenge. But it is predictable for all now. European Would you states. say, Louise, the situation is predictable now in insofar as we know um, that more and more people are are seeking uh, to come to, to Ireland? There are more people coming into the system, um, notwithstanding the war in Ukraine, who are seeking international protection. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And uh, and there should be an efficient system in place to process uh, their applications and to ensure that's done in a timely manner, which it isn't. And that causes those that's logjams. Well, but actually, it's, the, it's gone from 18 point. months to for eight the, months. For the, three so and a half thousand, for the three and a half thousand people in direct provision who uh, many of them are working, in fact, I think probably most of the vast majority of them are working now, and they're going home every evening to direct provision. That's an inappropriate place for them to be housed. But they cannot get out because of the housing crisis. These people who are forced to sleep in tents and now God knows where because because their tents were burned by thugs last night. So, oh, sorry, Friday night. Where are they going to go now? So they, they're going to they're going to probably move on to more tents, but that is not Can acceptable. Can I ask you about what the Department of Integration has confirmed that an agency has been engaging with other jurisdictions to understand the experiences of the proposal around floating accommodation, essentially floatels. Um, what would Sinn Féin consider around um, this uh, response to avoid people being homeless to avoid people living on the street while accommodation is got for them. Okay, well, I would ask the question firstly um, of uh, the, uh, of Jack and the government: Are they are they serious about this, or is this just uh, another kite that they fly? Because they do tend to do this. If they are serious about it, well, I would have very grave concerns. You're cutting people off from their communities, putting them into um, a, a floating 
I don't know what, for floatels, float is that what, what they're called? Yeah, I, I, I could probably think a of a different... that would house people. Yeah, away from communities, away from supports. We know that Dublin Port isn't going to be able to accommodate them. We don't know where it is proposed that they will go. Okay. This, to me, sounds like a little bit of a back-of-the-envelope job, a little bit of kite-flying from the government and a handy distraction from the fact that forward so you're saying no people to that. are sleeping on the streets. I don't think it's going to work at all. And, and I would have grave concerns. But again, I heard this story. I wonder, are the government serious about it? Uh, is the government serious about it? So look, the De Department of Children Integration may be exploring alternative accommodations options which are being used in other uh, countries. But Hotels. I, but the, so but, that but we're the, talking about floating but, but accommodation. The, but the predominant... The predominant look, the predominant... Boats moored the, the that would house asylum uh, seekers. Is this something being seriously there's, considered? There, it hasn't, there's been no, this hasn't come to to government in terms of any formal proposal. They may be uh, engaging in, 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 in the examination of alternative options, mm -hmm. but no formal proposal on this has yet to come to, to government. Uh, what I would say is the predominant response uh, will have to be through uh, procuring additional accommodation as we have procured for the 84,000 who have been accommodated. And the focus of the Department of Children Integration is on getting the hundreds of additional beds for those uh, that, are, that are currently uh, in a bit difficult position this evening and those who will arrive uh, and that's the focus of the Department of Integration trying to provide that accommodation shelter for those in need. Uh, we've heard from groups representing refugees that we shouldn't take our lead from the UK when it comes to managing migrants. This is regarding the idea of uh, floatels and, and, and floating accommodation. It's something that Fianna Fáil were looking at now it was back over 20 years ago um, initially and, and it was eventually turned down but it, it is something that is not off the table, would you say? Well, no, no formal proposal has come to government uh, from uh, they may, you know, officials will always examine options um, in terms of accommodation, but no formal proposal has and come to government view on this. Well, look, I, I think the uh, the the focus has to be procuring uh, accommodation for people like we have for the eighty four thousand who have received accommodation. I think that's the central focus of uh, of the Department of Children and Integration at the moment. Uh, that's the focus of the department, um, according to, to the minister. And I suppose it's a, the entire government is sort of giving that response today to, to it, Louise, yeah, that they're trying everything the they playbook. can in a, in a difficult situation. Yeah. Straight out of the Tory playbook. Uh, it would have been, I think, uh, I would have liked to have heard it ruled out. Um, unfortunately, it appears now from the comments that Jack has made that it's still on the table. I think that's very regrettable. And nothing has come to government I think about it's, this. Uh, again, straight out of the Tory playbook. It wouldn't surprise me if they tried to do it, but I do think it is a very, very, very bad idea. All right, um, there we will leave it. Um, my panel will be staying on with me. Coming up after the break, how the Irish Times was fooled by AI, uh, a written op-ed about fake tans. Do stay tuned. Mind your better nightly live interactive poll, which will allow you to get involved in the show and tell us what you think about the big issues of the day. Tonight, we're asking, have you used artificial, artificial intelligence tools yet? Do you know where to find them? Do you know how to use them? Uh, you can vote online on virtualmediatelevision.ie forward slash vote, or you can follow the QR code on the screen. Now, it was the ultimate dupe. The Irish Times, the paper of record, was caught out by artificial intelligence by publishing a fake opinion piece from a false account account in an online article. The piece claiming people who use fake tan are guilty of mocking those with dark skin uh, was pulled when suspicions were raised. The fallout has prompted all sorts of questions about editorial procedures and more widely about what is real 
in this AI age. Well, for more on this, Sinn Féin's Louise O'Reilly and Minister of State Jack Chambers have stayed on with me. I'm also joined by journalist with The Currency, Rosanna Cooney, and Managing Director of the O'Brien Press, Ivan O'Brien. Um, you're very welcome along to the programme. Rosanna, I want to come to you first because you uncovered this hoax. Uh, you spotted something was off with the photo of the purported author of the opinion piece. But remind us what we are dealing with, first off, when we talk about AI in the world of, of print media and the tools that can be used to create fake authors and fake pieces of writing. I think it's important here for us to note that, you know, this isn't new. Like journalism and newsrooms have been using AI for almost a decade now. And whether that's through like finance earnings reports that maybe no journalist even wants to sit down and write anymore, you know, they're all being AI generated. The same, most journalists every day are using transcription tools that save our fingers from hours of like audio transcribing. So it's become like really common for people to use AI tools in journalism and also for readers to be interacting with them. And maybe not even consciously, but but it is part of our day-to-day -day now. And so, yeah, this, this um, but this is kind of this new third wave of, of AI, which I think is throwing up all these kind of interesting mm -hmm. questions. So how did you come to the conclusion in, in, in the case of the piece written by Adriana Acosta-Cortez? Uh, how did you come to the conclusion that that was false? Um, so like many other people read the piece, was going through it and then spotted the author byline photo. And to me, it just immediately looked quite synthetic is the only way I can think. You know, the skin was super, was poreless and the features were a bit blurry. And then when you actually zoom in, you can see the irises of the two eyes are, are totally different sizes. Um, and so I suppose that gut instinct and you have a hunch and what you're able to do now, which I think is an important thing that um, the AI, the creators of different AI companies have mm. given us in a sense, is the ability to verify images, whether they've been AI generated or not. So myself, my colleague, Sean Keyes, ran the image through several AI checkers and were able to come back with that it had most likely been generated by DALI, which is um, the image generator mm -hmm. of the, by the same company that's created ChatGTP. Then it was just a matter of looking, okay, has this person got a social media profile? Do they exist online? Do they have a digital footprint? And they really basically didn't, other than some really recently created um, social media accounts. And for someone who's like 29, you know, living in Dublin, looks a bit cool, they're probably going to have mm. some kind of mm. footprint. It just okay. didn't match. You've pulled up several red flags there. Are you surprised that it got through all the editorial procedures then in the Irish Times and, and made it online? I suppose the thing that's surprising and the thing that I'm sure so many journalists had newsroom meetings this morning talking about this is like, picking up the phone. I think that's the check that makes the most sense is like, get on the phone with someone, you know, hear them out, talk to them, have that conversation. And so when we talk so much about AI and needing to be on top of all these new tools and, you know, it's developing at warp mm -hmm. speed, but ultimately the old school thing of having a phone conversation with someone, meeting someone in person, mm -hmm. that's the check that I think will be most for important going forward. Really going back to basics. Yeah, and it, is, and, it, and it is very basic, isn't it? It's sort of know your sources, call your sources, yeah. and meet your sources. If you're working with them for the first time, especially, I think that's the thing. Yeah, um, the Irish Times has issued a statement saying we have fallen victim to a deliberate and coordinated deception, um, but they also admit that it has highlighted a gap in their pre-publication procedures. Um, I want to bring you in, Ivan O'Brien, on this because as someone who... who, who 
oversees a well-known publishing house. Um, how familiar are you with AI and have you seen it being used? Have people you know, forwarded on, submitted work to you that you've gone, hey, did, did you actually write this yourself? Not at all, no, to be honest. Um, we haven't had anyone throwing material at us that we've been suspicious at. You know, we're, we're a small company. Most of our processes are fairly manual. You know, we expect people to fill out a form when they send stuff to us. No one's going to bother building an AI engine to do that. So I th and also when you're dealing with the type of books that we publish, you know, books that we expect people to voluntarily part with their own cash for and to read. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Pleasure and to recommend to their friends, they're done by humans. Uh, they really are. And there are multiple stages of editing and building and construction. If anyone threw something at us that had been thrown together by an AI engine, it's basically pastiche. But is it? You know, and it's yeah. just, it's not going to pass muster. Is it a concern um, in, in the bigger publishing houses or elsewhere? Is it a phenomenon that is emerging? Because we are seeing it as, as we've discovered um, and has been warned about in journalism. So are, are, are we seeing it sort of broadening out to, you know, publishes, uh, yeah. publishing of manuscripts? Um, there was an article I read recently about how to create a, an AI novel that uh, you don't even have to use your imagination. A, a bot will do it for you. Yeah, but it'll be a lousy novel. And no one will buy it. Uh, you know, there was a time 15 years ago when engines started creating imaginary mm -hmm. makey uppy books and thousands of them appeared. And then a couple of years later, they just disappeared because no one bought them because they were rubbish. They were just kind of pulled together from, from internet content. So Our concern is more about how the AI engines are built, where they're getting the material, because actually they're trained on a lot of stuff that's basically stolen. All of the words in those AI large language models were in books. All of the images in the image generation models were illustrations, photographs, mm -hmm. things that were created by humans. And basically our stuff, their stuff, is getting stolen and being used to make new things, which are then sometimes being passed off as though they were created by actual people. And so the artistic and creative community are being done out of... 
proper remuneration being done out of a living. And that's our primary concern, mm. really. Um, and that, that's a serious worry yeah. because, you know, there are a lot of words out there and these things are just spewing words in all directions. Jack, uh, do, you, do you worry about the editorial processes here? And really, I suppose, uh, the fact that the public would have trust in, in what's being published in, in the Irish Times case, people are paying a subscription in order you know, to read this work. Um, they are trusting that this is a valid opinion, that this is a, an opinion uh, of an individual who has their own life experience. It turns out not to be the case. Is that something that's concerning? Well, look, it, it was concerning that it, it got through their processes, but I think it's, it was, it's a wake-up call um, on, on that from an editorial perspective, which I know the Irish Times is addressing, to be fair to their editorial response. Um, but I think it's about, I suppose, the wider conversation about AI and, and that awareness that's just really propagating now over the last period in terms of the general public. Mm -hmm. I think it speaks to the point of organisations having internal controls fundamental human rights, um, transparency, ethics and governance will be at the core of how we uh, more generally address AI. And I know uh, there is a European framework being developed on how uh, you manage that risk and uh, and yet how you mitigate that risk in the context of AI. But there are also the, uh, as was mentioned, AI is, is used um, in finance uh, and in tech and in other areas um, in terms of the behind-the-scenes uh, approach around efficiency yeah. and the operations. I'm just so wondering if this piece wasn't about, which actually I think was, you know, fairly a, a divisive uh, opinion piece in itself. Um, as the author, purported author, said, um, it, was, it was done in order to be clickbait and to get clicks and to get reaction. Um, I'm just wondering if it was a piece that was about... Uh, an opinion on a politician, an opinion on you as a politician, how you'd feel, how you'd feel about that. Well, that's why I think having those internal controls um, within a publisher is really important. Mm. And and was and as I said, it's about having that basic check um, for sources. And uh, in fairness, vast majority of uh, journalists and nearly all journalists would would do that, particularly um, publishers that we're aware of. It obviously it got through their checks, and it's just okay. started this wider conversation. But I trust. Uh, many of our publishers will update their protocols or controls if they Did haven't Did you see it as a wake-up so, call? Yeah. Uh, interesting, because we asked in that poll, have you used artificial intelligence tools? We wanted your take on it. 47% of you say yes, you have used artificial intelligence tools. 53% saying no. There's a lot of people experimenting out there at the moment, Louise, and they may find themselves in a national newspaper. Yeah, they might indeed. I think there's no dispute, and I, this is cripplingly embarrassing for the Irish Times. I mean, absolutely, it's a, it's a failure of their editorial process, and I know that you know from the statements that have come out that they are not happy that this has happened. This is an embarrassment for them. And I think even more so in light of the fact that, as Rosanna said, it could have been sorted with a phone call. I, mm -hmm. a really, and, and that's when you talk about the back, back to basic stuff. But in the era of misinformation and disinformation, trusted sources are really important. And we need to be able to say with confidence, if you see something on the internet or if something is all over WhatsApp or all over TikTok or all over Facebook, mm -hmm. that there are trusted sources that you can go to. And I'm absolutely relieved that the Irish Times have taken this on board and now they will put in place uh, processes. But it does kind of highlight the how simple those processes are that, that, that were missed. You know, that a telephone call to the source probably would have sorted all of this out, given that the source was not in a position to answer the phone because they don't exist. I mean, do you think they it's are, a matter for the press about. ombudsman? Do you think it should be sort of elevated and, and looked at more than just sort of a, a, an apology 
um, from a paper in this regard? Does it get to the heart of, uh, I suppose, how journalism is conducted and those editorial procedures that you're talking about? I think the press ombudsman does have a role here, but more as an, uh, to, to kind of bring the parties together because what we all want uh, is to be able to rely on those trusted sources so that when, when we know that we have to check something, that there is a place we can go where we trust that. I think the press ombudsman does have a role here to maybe bring the parties together to ensure that the checks and balances can be put in place. It's not something that we're going to be able to stop. You know, we can't stop the tide coming in. We're not going to be able to stop this happening. But it can be controlled. It can be regulated. Mm. And we can ensure that where people read in the newspapers or see on the television, that they know that that is a trusted source. So that means that the people who are delivering that message, be they okay. paper journalists, print journalists, whatever, that they are going through the editorial process properly. That didn't happen, it's regrettable, but I think now is an opportunity to get ahead of this. Uh, would you agree that there's a place for the press ombudsman in this um, to look at this matter that goes beyond, uh, potentially goes beyond the Irish Times? I mean, that was one article uh, that Rosanna spotted there. How, how many others have gone through without being filtered, without being spotted? I think the way you suggestion is, is sensible um, in terms of developing wider protocols and helping journalism and editorial practice develop protocols and have mitigations in place within their overall editorial framework to to address any risks that are there um, and I think it's trying to work with all parties um, to to actually address that and 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 present as, as this develops as a greater feature I think uh, we're going to see this over the coming period AI is going to grow across society and that presents risk in terms of its proliferation across all aspects of society journalism being a key okay, can I ask you, Jack, because um, as I said, our interactive poll asked people, have they used AI? 47% said yes. Um, have you used AI? I haven't. I, I mean, things like ChatGBT or these, I haven't, but I'm sure... But your depart the Department of Transport has? It, there are a couple of departments that have used it. I know the Department of the uh, of uh, the Gwaltics has used it for mach machine translation mm. um, and it's been used in certain payment systems. I would say many of us have, have used it if you know if you're engaging on a on a for example, it could be a hotel website or it could be a um a, you know a service or chat box. Yeah, but this we're talking about government um, departments here and I'm yeah, asking this there, because there are, of know, um, know, Fine Gael TD Kieran yeah. Cannon has the, said yeah. there are glaring inconsistencies between the way different government departments yeah. are now using the likes yeah. of chat uh, GPT. So and are, he says there should be a complete ban. What do you well, think of that proposal? Well, I, I think, um, I think first of all, we have a, a structure in place um, through the Department of Enterprise, which has all government departments together um, on, on how, we should, how we can use AI. I think AI has a function uh, in society if it's used properly, as I said, with transparency, ethics and governance, because mm. it, can, um, it can do um, more complex tasks in a much more efficient way and that can support a better, a, a better public service. No, and that's where, that's where we have to be careful. So it's about using it and making a transparent decision on how you could use it. Um, but it's about having a prop structure in place, which we have for, through our AI strategy, which was published in 2021, on providing guidance to government departments on how best uh, to use it, actually in the interest of citizens um, so that they can have a better public service through the online environment. All right, OK. Um, so what would you think of that, Louise, that AI has a place that can actually help citizens if it's used by governments uh, 
yeah, in well, the right I, way. I think, I think if you ask the average citizen, they would prefer to be talking to a person rather than talking to um, a chatbot. I think they would prefer to, to, to get their services from an individual. Uh, if it is going to be used um, by government, and, and Jack says there that it is being used, there needs to be, as well as transparency and oversight, there needs to be consistency. And if there's not... Is Sinn Féin used AI? Not to my knowledge, but again, I think there's no way to avoid using some of it. Um, the likes because of it chat, is, uh, uh, is GPT, which has come no. under the spotlight. No, 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 we we, we haven't. Our uh, press officers write our, and, and we write our own material. But I do okay. think we're at a stage now where people can't avoid interacting somehow with AI. Mm. So that means we need to be talking about it, which is good. But we also need to have that transparency so that you know what it is. You don't believe okay. you're talking to a person when you're not actually talking to a person. Uh, Rosanna, um, on this about, I suppose, the lessons that can be learned and, and where this goes from here, the NUJ has waded in, um, haven't they, in terms of um, asking questions uh, of how this came about and how, I guess, it can be prevented? Yeah, I think there is an internal brouhaha brewing in the in the Irish Times. There, there's the NUJ's questioning the kind of the editorial standards and whether there's industrial relations issues. And that email went out um, from the NUJ to Irish Times today, I believe, and I think the Irish Times responding. So, be interesting to see how it develops. I mean, like listening to us all talk, you know, I just think. Pandora's out of the box. We have to co-evolve with this. It's not going anywhere. And like in terms of fearing it, and it just doesn't work. You know, it's gonna, it's just another evolution in, in technology, the same way telephone was, the same way digital journalism was to newspapers. That's what this is. And I think we, we co-evolve with it. Yeah, but does the, I suppose I'm asking the question, is the line drawn when it's a fake opinion piece that is, you know, quite a divisive topic that, Actually, the purported author did say, you know, this was this was publishing a very like left wing kind of awoke view in order to get clicks, in order to get reaction, that there's a bigger question there um, about the motives or about, you know, editorial processes here as well. I and, and in a related way, this is the, the labeling is really important. You know, you, the, the uh, European publishers, European authors associations are coming out saying if something is generated, by an artificial intelligence thing. It shouldn't be copyrighted, can't be, and it has to be labelled. You have to say, this was made by a machine, this was made by a human, and there has to be a clear divide between them if you want creative industries of all type, as well as journalism, to, to survive properly, because otherwise you just get spammed by all this rubbish. Okay, um, uh, before we go, we just want to get uh, move on briefly to another story, and we can take a look now at the Taoiseach's response when he was asked about his partner, Dr. Matthew Barrett's social media posts earlier today regarding um, social media commentary was, uh, that was made on the coronation of King Charles. Yeah, look, Matt's a, a private individual, um, my partner for over seven years now. Um, and uh, it was some private messages sent to some friends on his private account. Um, you know, he never intended them to go public, but... Uh, that happens sometimes um, and look at we've spoken about it and I think it's fair to say it's not, it won't happen again. Okay that's um, uh, that Leo Varadkar commenting um, when he was asked questions about um, Dr Matt Barrett's comments that he made when he was at um, the coronation of King Charles and there were some 
uh, photos on social media that he applied uh, comments to. Um, one, for example, saying uh, the Queen's uh, scepter and rod are being brought from the altar by the right reverend and right honour of the Lord Charter GV GCVO. Um, the Queen touches them in turn. And in response to that, he says, it sounds like the script to a good night out, to be honest, he quipped. Uh, there was another mention of clerk of the closet um, regarding some of the uh, procedures on the day and um, Matt highlighted that in orange and added had this job until my early 20s before uh, pressing send um, on that commentary because a lot was made of it in the British press I think um, Jack what, what do you think do you think it was as the British press put it embarrassing and highly insulting well look as Tishuk said um, it Matt's a private individual uh, and it was put out to a private account um, and is it really something, private when it's on social some, media? Something he didn't intend to go public, and he's also publicly apologised for it today. And I think we need to draw a line on, under it and move on. Okay, so do you think it's a big deal or not? Was the apology in well, order? I, I think okay, he's apologised and um, I said it wasn't intended to go public, as the Taoiseach said. And I think we need to move on. Okay. Uh, do you think there are any questions around it, Louise? Did did uh, Matt Barrett need to apologise? Well, he obviously felt the need to apologise. Um, and, and as the Taoiseach said, it's not going to happen again. I'm sure it's not. Um, but he's a private individual. He clearly thought whatever it was he was saying was I funny. I suppose now you could say he's a private individual, but he is there um, as a state representative, as an invited guest. Well, he was there as the partner of the Taoiseach. I don't think he was representing the state and I don't think it would be fair to put that on him. You know, it, obviously he thought it was going to be funny. He thought the people who follow him on, I think it was it Instagram or Twitter, wherever he put it, would also think that it was funny. My understanding is it's a private account. I think he, you know, he's now said he's sorry. I don't think it's a huge big deal, to be honest. I think it was, it was mm. maybe some of the commentary was a bit silly, but that's about it. Yeah, he did say, on reflection, uh, poor judgment on my part. I unreservedly apologise for any offence cause. We're going to leave that there. Uh, my thanks to the panel tonight. Lots more coming up after this break, including a look at the new Virgin Media documentary, Inside the Hospice. Do stay with us. Inside the Hospice, a three-part documentary series by Virgin Media, takes a look at death and grief in Ireland from the perspective of those facing it. Episode one of this groundbreaking series began this evening with unprecedented access. I'm joined by Mary Flanagan, Director of Nursing at Our Ladies Hospice and Care Services. Uh, but first tonight, we can take a look at a clip from tonight's episode. It's very entertaining planning your... I shouldn't be saying that, really. But it's very entertaining planning your, your funeral because you think of all the things that you want and all the things that you hope. I'm sure I was thinking of the great fun I'd have after the thing, you know, when all the thing was over and the music and talking to them all and the lady said, pointed out to me, you know, you won't be there. <laughs> subsequently, subsequently, we were going to finish with Menomina. <laughs> <laughs> because when we first met, that was a big... Do you remember the, the, the Muppets? That was a huge big... And we used to be driving all over the place, screeching Menomina all over the place. So we were going, we were going to place... We were going to do that, but we thought, that really, you know, it's bad enough without making us childish altogether. <laughs> 
a clip from tonight's programme um, about inside the hospice. Uh, Mary, thank you so much for joining us on the programme. I'm struck by that clip there about talking about death, talking about end of life. What's going to be at your service? Um, how will you be remembered? Do you think that's a conversation we're, we're comfortable uh, as a nation having? I suppose death and, and dying and facing your own mortality is very individual to people. But I think over the last number of years, hospice and palliative care services, I suppose, have opened up those conversations and encouraged people to have those conversations maybe earlier rather than when somebody is diagnosed with a life-limiting illness. Because that means, I suppose, for people, they have the opportunities, like the person in our, doing in our clip there, who can actually, I suppose, talk about it with their family open the conversations and have very honest conversations with people, which ultimately makes it easier for somebody when they come to that end of life stage and families are not asking themselves the questions. Mm. I wonder what would they have liked? They know what they've liked and they're able to honour those wishes for those, for their individual family members. Because the, the, the person may be in a, in a situation that it's end of life care, they're very frail, weak, um, that, that, and, and the family members are making decisions for them. But how difficult is it a decision um, for people to make around end of life care, around going into a hospice, or should you be cared for at home? Um, is this something that people really grapple grapple with and have difficulty with kind of making that call, Mary? I think everybody, again, has to make the decision that's right for them. So every individual circumstance is different. Some people have a big fear of the word hospice or the word palliative care. For, so for them, mm. it's about supporting them and helping them to overcome that fear. For others, they might have a fear for their family and they don't want their family to see them at home. So therefore they want to come in and willingly come into our services. And for others, they want to come in, but they also maybe want to go home. So they might want to go home when their symptom has improved or perhaps go home maybe to die. So it's very individual. And a part of what we have to do in the hospice is work with everybody individually to try and give them the best quality of life, but try and honour and support them with their end of life wishes as they approach that, that time of their life. So has it changed over the years, the care that you're offering people in, in a hospice, um, you know, moving back to the community in part, that there is that opportunity for people to stay at home? Has that, has that shifted a bit the focus of, of I suppose, the focus of the, the attention of the hospice as to where you are providing that care? Yeah, absolutely. I think when people think about hospices over the years or years ago, it was very much about institutional care. And indeed, it often was just around cancer. But now our care is for both patients with cancer and, and non-cancerous. But also our services have developed as well. So we are very much community facing. There's been an improvement in the, in the number of hospices that are available, but also in the number of community services that are out there. So I suppose that's helped people to make those decisions a little bit easier for them because there's increased access to services. We also have outpatient services, patients can go in for respite as well. So that's another avenue that, that's, that's open to people. Yeah, it's interesting because you work in the area of palliative care and it, it could seem like a difficult job that goes against the idea of, you know, saving a patient, restoring them to good health. Do you see do you see hope in your job? Do you see a positivity that comes with the job that other people may say? How, how do you work in that environment? Is it very difficult? I think that's a very regular question that staff get asked that work in, in hospice and palliative care. But I think there is no more rewarding job than to be able to give people with a life limit, 
navigating illness, the quality of life that they want and to be with them on that journey. It's almost in many respects a privileged position and staff are very, I suppose, proud of what they do um, and they're proud of achieving the, the wishes for people and supporting people mm. and their families as well because I suppose palliative care and hospice care is not just about the individual, it's also wrapped around the family as well. And how do you, I mean, over the years, have families requested different things and mm. how, like, they interact with their loved ones and kind of trying to make it feel like home or trying to make this... But it's a very difficult and, and, and sad days trying to sort of bring a bit of fun um, to that. Have, have you seen that over the years? And is that something that hospice care sort of adapted to as well? The family's wishes for a loved one to make things appear normal and, and fun for their last days? Well, absolutely. I think it's it's the family. It's the, first of all, it's the patient's wishes, and sometimes those wishes might be about having their their pet um, with them in, in the room. Um, it might be their family's wishes about making sure that they can celebrate a particular event. It might be somebody's wish to go out to do something um, that they've wanted to do for some time, and that they we now can facilitate that through the support of our volunteers. Essentially, bucket list stuff. Well, to some extent, bucket list, but sometimes it's just very small things, mm. and it's the small things that can can make the difference. So so, you know, people can bring in their own furniture, you know, if they want to have, and you saw that on the, on the, on the clip there, if they want to have their, their bottle of Prosecco in the evening, like they've always done with their friends, that's something that, that we, can, we will facilitate. So the regular medical rules, to, to an extent, go out the window, would you say, Mary? They're often challenged. I think that's fair to say. So it's for us to find the right space to, I suppose, meet the clinical needs, because, you know, people are in our services because they need clinical care. Mm. But it's also trying to provide that care with compassion and in a and as homely an environment as we can and as normal as environment. And that's really important for people, that it's as normal. And we try not to have it too clinical. Our facilities, our, our environment is such that that is not the case. OK, Mary, thank you so much. It's amazing work you do. Um, part one was on tonight. There's a further two parts of that documentary. We would say, you know, go watch. Um, it's very enlightening um, and it's a really great insight. Uh, that is it from us. Inside the Hospice is going to continue tomorrow night at nine on Virgin Media One. But from all the late team here, our panellists, our guests, uh, good night and do take care. <laughs>